Welcome, this, this is, is Fuck the Bins. An anarchist podcast. Today, we'll be looking at book reviews, camera surveillance, anti-fascist news, news from Switzerland, and London events. Okay, so my holiday reading was A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, A Guide to Capitalism, Nature, and the Future of the Planet by Raj Patel and Jason Moore. I've read some of Jason Moore's previous work, including his book Capitalism and the Web of Life, and a collection of essays he edited on whether we should call the current geological period the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene. This collaboration with Raj Patel seems to be an attempt to bring some of the ideas developed in Capitalism and the Web of Life to a mass audience, and is written in an easygoing and accessible manner entirely absent from Moore's solo work. The book's central thesis is that capitalism requires seven cheap things in order to function. Nature, money, work, care, food, energy, and lives. For example, food provision must be as cheap as possible, and thus trashes the environment, so there are more calories produced with less labour time in the system. This cheap food then lowers the minimum wage threshold, as workers can be paid less and not starve. Rajan Moore describe themselves as economic historians, and much of their work involves pouring through production records of European colonies to show how they operated and the function they served in both capital accumulation and, aver and averting resource limitations in Europe. For this, they frequently refer back to the example of Madeira as the testing ground of the colonial method. Madeira was at first stripped of all of its natural wood resources before the planting of cash crops in the form of sugarcane. The sugar growing and processing was completed by a mixture of hyper-exploited workers and slaves, until the combined biological and economic exhaustion of the island. Capital and colonists then looked to new frontiers for sources of cheap nature. Their history of capitalism is very much one tied with European colonialism and their analysis involves the philosophical consideration of how colonialism and slavery could be justified by the imperial powers. Namely, that the indigenous peoples within the colonies could be classified as nature and therefore non-human and a resource to be exploited. This is evidenced in the debate held in 1550, known as the Valladolid Controversy. This debate was to decide whether the occupants of the Spanish colonies were human and thus had rights, or whether they were savages, part of nature and therefore exploitable. In the end, there was no clear winner, and the so-called Ecomienda system continued. This allowed indigenous peoples to be kept by the colonists, who now claim to own their land, for two lifetimes, that of theirs and their children. As long as they were given Spanish lessons, Catholic schooling, and the colonists paid a fee to the state for the right to do this. With this and other examples, the book offers up a powerful critique of how capitalism, colonialism, and the state have always been entwined, the development of one being used to benefit the other. This book does have some flaws, however. In one, sec in one section, Patel and Moore analyse Russia and China as communist states, and suggests there was very little difference between their conception and exploitation of nature and that of the capitalist economies. This seems a little odd given that the critique that these states were actually state capitalist rather than communist has been around a long time. Emma Goldman was saying this in the 1930s and the Johnson Forest Tendency was saying it in the 1950s. Patel and Moore seemed to completely ignore this as well as the work of Bookchin who suggested dominations in society would always be mirrored in the domination of nature. Patel and Moore ends with their vision of the way forward, which they name Reparation Ecology. This focuses on recognition, reparation, redistribution, reimagination, and recreation, because apparently post-capitalist visions must always be alliterative. 
The way to achieve this is sadly absent, however, and having read some of Moore's other work, the focus so far still seems to be on recognition. For example, debating whether the Anthropocene should be called the Capitalocene, the Cthulhu scene, or the Necrocene. Concepts which, at least to me, seem to have little direct impact in practice. Overall, I think this book serves as a useful primer on capitalism, ecology and colonialism, as well as a window into the more academic work of accounting for flows of capital and nature during the development of capitalism. It's certainly the most readable of Moore's books, so if you want an overview of his, of his ideas, I definitely recommend this work with Raj Patel. Seeing as I got it in hardback in a half-price sale for £8, I'm going to say 8 out of 10 for content, but 9 out of 10 for value. Here's a short text about population control that I wrote myself. As with many surveillance, video surveillance must be fought with speech and sabotage. As not enough human watchers can be hired to check all the CCTV images, algorithms have been created to do the job. Behaviors are therefore detected. For instance, if you have some feet moving fast in the street, you can see that someone's running. Maybe that person is running from committing a crime or something like this. Then, the images will pop out on the screen of a human this time that can then check if something is happening or not. That's how the control spread. In addition to behaviors, perpetrators, to use a police language, can be identified thanks to facial recognition. In China, city is experimenting with a so-called social account. If you commit incivilities, you can end up banned from public transport. A world in which cameras can recognize you when you cross the street outside the zebra crossing, send a notification about it on your phone, and show your face on a gigantic screen for public shaming already exists. You, you drunkenly stumble while going home, there's a file that says how many times you go to the pub a week. You are kissing someone in the street, a file says who you kiss, on the cheek, an acquaintance, on the mouth, your sexual orientation. Being in the street two years in a row for the 1st of May, a unionist, you stop in the street, move, you have work waiting for you. But sure, it's not to control you. It's just about protecting, improving social relationship, improving how you live, about the product to the, about the adapt the product to the consumer's needs. The managers of our lives, who are flooding us with the Orwellian newspeak, are hiding very badly the intensified control of the population it creates. Self control is another disgusting aspect of surveillance when each one of us will be so scared of what the eyes of the state record that nobody will dare to do anything else than a precise list of authorized activities, then we will have lost all our liberties for good. We will be our own cops. It is impossible not to be aware of the dangers that comes with the use of their technologies. So what are we waiting for to revolt against them and their masters? We must fight video surveillance. Cameras are chains, let's break our chains. One of the features in this podcast is called Books That Inspired Us. Books that were the starting point of a particular interest or that are groundbreaking political text, but also writing that will stay with you while reading other books. On that note, I would like to present an excerpt from Jean-Paul Sartre's Existentialism is a Humanism, a text that explains the existentialist so-called motto Existence precedes essence. This excerpt is an important reminder of how the idea of a set human nature came into being and how it can be dismantled and what existentialism and anarchism might share. Surprisingly, the idea of a fixed and unchallengeable human nature, where essence precedes existence, still often shapes everyday life judgments and political discourse, 
for example, when questioning patriarchy, war, or the organisation of society. While thoughts on human nature itself are clearly part of an already very broad discussion, discussing human nature is clearly important to anarchism, not at least looking at questionable nostalgia for more primitive societies, and because it's easy to shift the blame to human nature when it comes to failed projects. While sympathetic to a range of radical left positions, I would obviously not class Sartre as an anarchist, but such definitions and evaluations of his persona are ultimately irrelevant on this occasion. The importance of the following, as part of a libertarian thinking, cannot be overestimated. I quote this passage in translation and in length. If one considers an article of manufacture, for example a knife, one sees that it has been made by an artisan who had a conception of it. He has paid attention, equally, to the conception of the knife and to the pre-existent technique of production, which is a part of that conception and is a formula. Thus the knife is at the same time an article producible in a certain manner and one which serves a definite purpose. For one cannot suppose that a man would produce a knife without knowing what it was for. Let us say then of the knife that its essence, the sum of the formula and the qualities which made its production and its definition possible, precedes its existence. When we think of God as a creator, we are thinking of him as a supernatural artisan. Whatever doctrine we always imply that the will follows understanding, so that when God creates he knows precisely what he is creating. The conception of man in the mind of God is comparable to that of the knife in the mind of the artisan. God makes according to procedure and conception, exactly as the artisan manufactures a knife. Thus each individual is the realisation of a certain conception which dwells in divine understanding. So in the philosophic atheism of the 18th century, the notion of God is suppressed, but the idea that essence is prior to existence, we still find it everywhere. Man possesses a human nature. That human nature, which is the conception of human being, is found in everyone, which means that each man is a particular example of a universal conception. Here again, the essence of man precedes that historic existence which we confront in experience. Now, atheistic existentialism declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, there is at least one being whose existence comes before its essence, a being which exists before it can be defined by any conception of it. That being is man or the human reality. And what do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence? We mean that man first of all exists, encounters himself and defines himself afterwards. If man as the existentialist sees him is not definable, it is because to begin with he is nothing. Thus there is no human nature, because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man simply is. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. Now, leaving aside a whole other discussion about free will, Sartre's notion of existence over essence eventually places that what is called human nature in a position where it is shaped by ourselves, our environment and our individual reactions to that. And while Sartre's example is quite concrete, it undoubtedly also opens up a whole new set of questions, which is, I think, ultimately, what a good book is about. You can find the complete text at archive.org 
and the link is in the description. So in our last episode, we included an anti-fascist call-out against the free Tommy Robinson crew who were marching in London. The counter-mobilisation was bigger than previous attempts, with around 500 people joining the autonomous bloc, separate to the around 2,000 who joined the Stand Up to Racism event. Although this was a better turnout than previous mobilisations, it was still small compared to the 6,000 on the other side. Anarchists and those on the autonomous left are currently meeting to develop a strategy to build a wide-reaching anti-fascist movement, separate from the SWP and all the baggage that, that that entails. Since the mobilisation, we've had a barrage of news about the far right. Firstly, Tommy Robinson is now out of jail, although he's looking like less of a man of the people after it was revealed he's paid around 100 grand a year by an American think tank. Second, Generation Identity, everyone's favourite hipster Nazis, seem to have imploded after their UK leadership realised that their counterparts on the continent were openly neo-Nazi rather than just flirting with it, and they got a bit nervy. This may have, have something to do with their leader losing his banking job because of his Nazi politics, and their flop of a London conference which had to move to Kent and still got closed down by anti-fascists. The third piece of anti-fascist news was an attack on the socialist bookshop bookmarks by an odd collection of UKIP members and Trump supporters. Although the so-called attack was pretty pathetic, this is just one example of the far right becoming emboldened and attacking the infrastructure of left-wing organising. There are numerous call-outs over the coming months, so I'd encourage all our listeners to follow updates from the Anti-Fascist Network on where and how they can help. Looking away from London, we would like to draw attention to anarchist projects from all over the world. This month, we're looking at the newly reopened anarchist library in Zurich, Switzerland. Aptly titled Fermento, this library aims to create a space that allows radical ideas to brew. And while functioning as a library in the traditional sense, Fermento is also a meetup space looking to host anarchist events. Besides a good amount of political books, of which some are now out of print, and selected fiction titles, especially their collection of anarchist newspapers, leaflets, pamphlets and magazines deserves a mention. All available to take away in exchange for a small donation. With a large number of anarchist papers on the continent often only available in print issues in their local communities, it's incredibly beneficial to have access to dozens of publications from around Europe. Considering Switzerland's rich history of anarchist and anarchist movements, and bearing in mind previous disturbances by the so-called authorities that Fermento had to endure over the years, it's encouraging to see this unremitting attempt to keep the project alive. You can find Fermento in Zweistrasse 42 in Zurich and more info online at bibliotheque-fermento.ch So more international news coming from Serbia in Novi Sad. The 28th to the 30th of September this year will be the 12th uh, Balkan Anarchist Book Fair. So don't miss it. You can find more info at basque, B-A-S-K, 2018.noblogs.org. Okay, and now to events coming up in London. Uh, The next Anarchist Federation reading group will not actually involve any reading. Yay! Instead, we'll be watching the film No Gods, No Masters, A History of Anarchism, which is available in English translation on YouTube. If you'd like to get involved, please watch the film in your own time and then come along to the reading group at Freedom Bookshop, 7pm on the 18th of September to discuss. And the next event we'd like to mention is that Houseman's and Freedom Bookshops have announced that as the London Anarchist Book Fair will not be happening this year, they'll be hosting a festival of anarchist ideas instead.
This is imaginatively called Not the Anarchist Book Fair and will be on the 20th and the 21st of October across the two venues with hopefully more yet to be announced. If you'd like to host a workshop or a talk, get in touch with them as soon as possible via their website anarchistfestival.wordpress.com. We're pleased to announce the Anarchist Federation will be giving an introduction to anarchism at Houseman's uh, at 7pm on the 20th of October as part of the festival. So finally, we like to come to an end to our podcast with a short comment on Fuck the Bins. Which bins, you might ask, well, this month's situationist giver who writes, A mental disease has swept the planet, banalization. Everyone is hypnotised by production and conveniences, sewage systems, elevators, bathrooms, washing machines. This state of affairs arising out of a struggle against poverty has overshot its ultimate goal, the liberation of humanity from material cares, and becomes an omnipresent obsessive image. Presented with the alternative of love or garbage disposal unit, young people of all countries have chosen the garbage disposal unit. Fuck the bins and goodbye.